In this lesson, we will cover three points of note from chapter 8. First of all, we'll talk about Jesus as the true light. Second, we'll talk about Jesus as truth itself. And third, the pre-existence of the truth. But before we get there, a brief word about chapter 7, verse 53, to chapter 8, verse 11. In many English Bibles, this passage is bracketed out, and we rightly wonder why is it bracketed. Is this passage really written by John? Is it really biblical? If not, why is it there? And if so, why is it bracketed? There are two reasons why most scholars believe it does not belong there. The first is because of its content. The second is because of the oldest copies of the Gospel of John. Content-wise, it seems to interrupt the flow of the narrative as it moves from chapter 7 into chapter 8. The narrative concerns the teaching of Jesus at the Feast of Booths, and in particular, his teaching at the ceremonies that traditionally took place on the last day of the feast, namely the pouring out of the water and the lighting of the great lights. The story of the woman caught in adultery seems to interrupt that story, it kind of sits at a place. Second, the oldest manuscript copies of John's Gospel do not contain the story. The story appears in the copies that are found only late. And so the best manuscript evidence we have of John's Gospel do not include it. Nevertheless, the authenticity of the story is most likely. Scholars don't doubt that the story is an authentic record from the life of Christ. Perhaps it was part of a long oral tradition or a written tradition that has been now lost, and it eventually got added to the Gospel of John by later scribes. That means for our purposes here, while the story is good and commendable, and one that is most likely historically authentic, we do not regard it as canonical and therefore we will not be expounding it here. Well, that will bring us then to the rest of chapter 8. So first of all, let's talk about Jesus as the true light. We pick him up here in the middle of his preaching at the temple, still it seems at the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles on the last and great day. And in verse 12, he speaks of light, which was quite appropriate, of course, considering that during this feast, they had a ceremony of lights, kind of like the ceremony of the pouring out of the water, referred to in the last lesson, chapter 7. Great golden candlesticks were lit up at night in the ceremony, and everyone would come into the temple area with torches, and they would sing the praises of God. One Jewish record described it this way, quote, There was not a courtyard in all of Jerusalem that was not illumined by the light of the place of the water drawing, end quote. Now, it's difficult to say what the significance of the light was exactly. Presumably, since the feast commemorated the desert wanderings of Israel, the fiery lights recalled the pillar of fire in which God manifested himself, graciously providing guidance and protection for Israel as they traveled at night. So it's against this visual and theological background that we see Jesus stand up in the temple and announce 
that he himself is the light of the world. And you can picture it, can you not? It's dark. It's evening. Blackness all around. Darkness all around. And that darkness being dispelled only by the brilliantly lit candles and torches in the temple. The entire temple court lit up by pillars of fire. And Jesus stands up. And as he stands up, he is in effect saying, you see all of this light. You see all of these torches. It is nothing. It is pale. It's dull. It's shadowy compared to me. If you want light that dispels the darkness, and if you want to talk about pillars of fire and the manifestation of the Lord of the Old Testament, Jesus is saying, here I am. I am He. I am the light of the world. That fiery pillar that led Israel at night was but a temporary earthly picture foreshadowing Him who is the light of the world that is to come. As Israel followed that light by night in the desert, Jesus is saying, in effect, if you follow me by faith, you will no longer walk in darkness, but you will have light in yourself. Namely, you will have me, eternal life. You see, it's Jesus' assumption here that people are already walking in darkness. It is the presupposition of Jesus that there is a problem among humanity, and in particular, the people who are surrounding him at the temple. And the problem is this. They, we, all since Adam, are walking in darkness. The world is formless and void because of sin. Darkness is over the face of the world because of sin. There is no true, real light resident within this earthly, this worldly experience. This is why John can begin his gospel in chapter 1 by saying that the Lagos, the eternal Word, had life and light in himself, verse 4, that he was the light of men, and that as the light of man... When that redemptive light shines, the darkness cannot overcome it. Verse 5 of chapter 1. You see, the problem with the world is that it has no light. After Adam took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and as he sinned against God, he plunged himself and all of us, all of humanity, into a state of sin, misery, and spiritual darkness. You see, Jesus was speaking here to the people of the covenant, to the people of the old covenant church, in fact, to religious leaders. But despite the fact that they were in the covenant, despite the fact that they were those who claimed to be interpreters and experts in the law, despite the fact that they were religious leaders, they were in darkness because they did not follow Jesus. They did not believe in Him. And light can be found nowhere else other than in Him who is the true, that is to say, the heavenly light. These religious leaders, these Pharisees, refused to follow Jesus. 
They had all the covenant privileges in the world. They had the scriptures. They had Moses who spoke of Jesus. And yet they didn't have Jesus for they refused him. They they rejected him. And so in verses 13 through 19, back now in John chapter 8, they argue with Jesus. They say that Jesus is being his own witness. And we know from the Old Testament that no man's opinion is able to establish his own word. Rather, he needs witnesses, witnesses outside of himself, at least two witnesses in order to establish his case. But Jesus responds by saying, basically, I don't need any mere human being to authenticate my claims. After all, why? Because Jesus is God. His word is truth. And therefore, his word and his testimony is true. No questions asked. He knows where he came from. He came from heaven. He came from the Father. As God, his word never comes under the authentication of man. As God, the word of Jesus does not need the stamp of approval by men in order to be established as true. But down in verse 21 of chapter 8, Jesus gives a very humbling warning. If they continue in their natural state, if they continue in the darkness that they now possess, in that sin, in that blindness that every person coming into the world has by nature, then they will die. You see, Jesus is due soon to return home to heaven. And they will no longer see him at that time. And they will think that he, having died, being out of sight, that they have won. But they, in their unbelief, Jesus warns them, will die and die because and in their sin. Verse 22 confirms the hardness of their hearts. Look at verse 22. Will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? You see, in their perversity, in their perversity of thinking, they believe that he's going to commit suicide. They don't understand the meaning of Jesus. In fact, they miss his warning altogether. Rather than being concerned about dying in their sin, they're more concerned by what he means about going away. But Jesus responds well to their unbelief in verse 23. Look at what he says there. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. And at last we understand We understand why it is that they don't get it, why they can't comprehend the meaning of what Jesus is communicating, because they are of this world, the world that is in darkness. They are trapped within this sphere of the the fallen order. They're walking in total darkness. They are blind to the truth. They are blind to him who is the light of the world. And they don't even know it. But Jesus knows it. 
And Jesus knows it because he is not of this world. He is not of this world that is characterized by darkness, sin, and rebellion, and blindness. But he is from heaven. He is from the sphere of light, from the domain of glory. And he can see their darkness. He can also dispel their darkness. But they refuse to follow him, and therefore they remain in the darkness. So Jesus gives them one last warning in verse 24 where he says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He says it twice, you will die in your sins. He warns. He warned them that they would die in darkness, that the darkness would blind them, and that the time of their death they would perish in their sin. But Jesus also offers them, with the warning, a way of escape. Notice the word here, unless. There is an exception to the rule, that all those who walk in darkness will die in their sins, and the exception is granted to all who believe that Jesus is the Savior, that He is the light of the world, that He is the life-giving light. For all those who do believe in Him, they will not die in their sins, but rather they will die in the light. They will, they will die with the forgiveness of their sins, and they will pass from, from death to everlasting life. Secondly, let's talk about Jesus as truth itself. The relation between the idea of truth and heaven is already made clear in these verses. And the occasion is, once again, Jesus' teaching about his going away. Look at verse 21. Jesus explains that the place to which he goes is the place of his origin. He says to them, verse 23, as we already indicated, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Together, this teaching explains a kind of exitus reditus pattern for the mission of the Son. His origin is in the highest heaven. He says, I am from above. He leaves, exitus, he leaves the highest heaven for the earth in the incarnation, and he does so for us in our salvation but he is soon to return there, reditus. This is a redemptive historical movement of humiliation to exaltation, a movement from heaven down to the earth and back to heaven again. Now, verse 26 of chapter 8 is key here for us. There, Jesus refers to the one who sent him. And as we know, because he has indicated this before in previous chapters, it is the Father. For Jesus comes from God, verse 42. So before the mission of the Son, before the Son exits heaven for the earth in the incarnation, He and the Father are together. They are pre-existing together in heaven. And this Father who sends the Son is described by Jesus as true. Now the context is a debate about authority and witnesses. And Jesus' point is this, he doesn't operate on his own authority, verse 28. He only speaks and does as his Father has told him to do. 
That means that the Word and the works of the Father and the Son are together mutually self-authenticating. The Jews are here demanding multiple witnesses, and Jesus explains that both He and the Father witness to the truth. Given their heavenly dwelling place, the Father and the Son are both true. That is to say, they are from the realms of heaven. So the Father is true because of who He is and because of His heavenly dwelling. True here then denotes the idea of what is original. He is the original Father, the archetype of all other fathers. And as such, all He says and does on earth is true. He needs no authentication. He needs no witnesses. The Father of the Son is true, and the Son is Himself the truth. As such, the words and the works of Him who is the truth is true and is truth itself. As such, the words and the works of the Son must be believed because they are true. There is no ambiguity. Look at verse 45 and 46. Verse 45, But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So the Son's words and works are truth. They are truth that can be read off the surface for all to see. The problem is not with the Son Himself. The problem is not with Him who is the truth itself. The revelation of the truth in the Son is perfectly clear. It can be read off the surface of both His words and His actions. The problem is with those who refuse to believe, who are still living in darkness. The Word and works of God demand the immediate response of faith. The Word of God is not subject to interrogation or negotiation. The Word of God, God Himself, is never on trial. He can never be put in the dock. He is never subject to scrutiny or critical analysis. He is to be believed and at once obeyed. And that is because He is the true. He is the truth. He is the standard of all that is true. He is the heavenly original of all of the earthly copies. And He is the one who is to be believed in for His own sake. Third, the pre-existence of the truth, verses 48 to 59. So all this means that while Abraham may be an earthly father, Abraham is not the original father. He may be the biological father of all the Jews, but there is one who is yet a greater father than he. There is one also who came before him. There is the one who, in fact, created Abraham in his own image. Of course, Jesus has been telling them that their father, that is to say the father of the unbelieving Jews, is the devil, verse 44. But they counteract 
saying, no, 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 our father is Abraham, verse 53. But Jesus, in verse 56, forces the situation. He says, your father Abraham. And this will force the antithesis. The antithesis here is between two kinds of sons. The sons of the devil and the sons of the Heavenly Father. For what he is about to say next will expose their hearts. It will prove whether or not they are truly sons of Abraham. For Jesus is about to make a claim concerning Father Abraham. And the claim is that Father Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day. That is to say, Father Abraham rejoiced to see the time when the promises of God would be fulfilled, the day when the long-expected Messiah would arrive. And in fact, Abraham did see it. Abraham saw it, says Jesus, and Abraham was glad. But how did Abraham see Jesus' day? He anticipated it by faith. Abraham was able to see it from afar on the basis of the promises of God that were given to him. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. The author to the Hebrews, speaking about Abraham and other Old Testament believers, says this, These all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. But this is something you see that the Pharisees do not understand. They take him literally, which is a common theme in the Gospel of John. Those people to whom Jesus is speaking take his words Literally. Unbelievers show themselves blind to the meaning of the teaching of Jesus when they fail to grasp what the metaphor is pointing to. Nicodemus, you'll remember, cannot understand what Jesus meant when he was talking about being born again. Here, the unbelieving audience to whom he speaks once again fail to grasp Jesus' meaning. They fail to understand that he is speaking about the faith of Abraham, a faith that that anticipated the final days, the last days, the days of messianic salvation, which was promised to Abraham so long ago. And so what do they do? They argue back. How is it that Abraham delighted to see your day. And they say, you're not even yet 50 years old. How can Jesus have seen Abraham? Now, notice their subtle twisting of the words of Jesus. As they bear the image of their father, the devil, they twist the words of God. Jesus did not say that he saw Abraham, but that Abraham saw Jesus' day. Nevertheless, Jesus goes with it, and he essentially explains that his ability to see Abraham is not constrained 
by the age of his human nature. And that is because, of course, the person of Christ existed long before 50 years ago. He was alive 100 years prior, 1,000 years prior, even long before Abraham existed, because the person of Christ has always existed. It is a personhood that is, in fact, eternal and is not constrained by time. For as Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, the I am that is referred to here is absolute. It is not bound by time, as Ritterboss notes in his commentary. As it says in Hebrews, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8. Nevertheless, there is some debate as to whether the I am statement here, and also back in verse 24, is a reference to the divine name of Yahweh. For instance, both Ritterboss and Calvin see it as referring not to the divine name, but rather to Jesus' messianic office. Others, however, see it as a reference to the divine name Yahweh. For example, Leon Morris makes the argument. Most prominently, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, it says this, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Also, in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10, it says this, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Now, without getting into all the linguistic evidence for this conclusion, we will simply cite verse 59 as contextual proof that the name of the God of Israel is what is in view here. Here, for once, the Jews rightly understand Jesus. They understand exactly what it is he is saying. And for them, it is blasphemy. They arm themselves. You'll notice here there is no need for trial. And they move immediately to the execution. Because he has taken the name of the Lord God to himself, they pick up stones to stone him. Leviticus 24, 16. And we are told that Jesus hides himself and leaves the temple. But according to Leon Morris, the better translation here is, but Jesus was hidden rather than Jesus hides himself. So in other words, Leon Morris wants to translate that into, um, into the, the passive form rather than the active form. And if Morris is correct that it should be translated here, but Jesus was hidden, it denotes the idea that Jesus and his life are preserved by divine intervention, which makes sense because as of this moment, his hour had not yet come. So in summary then, what Jesus here is doing in John chapter 8 is what he has been doing all throughout the Gospel of John thus far. He shows himself to be the true one. He is the true one whose home is heaven, who comes from heaven and returns to heaven. He is the Ancient of Days, the one who exists before Abraham, 
He is the one who exists from all of eternity. But that is the kind of thing that can only be seen by the eyes of faith. And what exactly those eyes are, and what exactly and how they see, will be the subject of our next lesson in chapter 9.